This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we look back at Salone del Mobile. We'll reflect on what was on show at the world's biggest furniture fair, checking in with artist Daniel Arsham, designers such as Andrea Farapani, and company CEOs including Artemides Carlotta di Bevilacqua. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to today's show. Now, regular listeners would know that last week we came to you from Milan as part of Monocle's on-the-ground coverage of Salone del Mobile. This week, however, we're back in the cosy confines of Midori House in London to reflect on the week that was in the Lombardy capital. We're picking up where we left off with an interview from our pop-up studio in the Rossignoli bike shop in Brera. Here, Monocle's Marcus Hippie caught up with Carla Hartman, Education Director for the Eames office. She's also the granddaughter of Charles and Ray Eames and the daughter of artist Lucia Eames. Naturally, she's well-placed to comment on the family's work and legacy, and it's in this capacity that she curated an exhibition on Lucia's work at Salone del Mobile this year. Called Seeing with the Heart, the show offered a unique look into her mother's practice, and it's this perspective that Hartman shared with us. This has been an interesting sort of adventure. I'd say that I started archiving her work about 16 months ago, and it became quickly apparent that she hadn't really shared with us her artwork. And it was a treasure trove. It was exhilarating, it was optimistic, and uh, we suddenly realized that this had to be out in the world at this precise time. Did you have an idea of the things she had created, the amazing things she had created? She was a graphic designer, I knew that, and she produced a lot of metal gates, benches, tables. I have a lot of them in my home, actually. But it was more the drawing, the writing, and the precise sketching and reiteration of things that really stopped me short. What have you brought to Milan this time? What can people see at that display? We are very excited about this exhibition because it is right in Via Solferini, uh, number 11, and we chose an apartment building or an apartment house because if her work was in a white box, it wouldn't have shown as well. And so the first room is about her hand-cut butterflies dealing with recycled materials that often people think of as trash. So opening an envelope and utilizing the pattern inside the envelope that many of us don't even know exists. But creating her butterflies that are a tribute to the monarch butterfly migration that she saw at the Eames house throughout her life. And butterflies have always been a meaningful piece. We also have a giant cloud of small laser-cut butterflies and a huge blown-up one because scale was so important to her. I could go on and on. There are four rooms. The second room is more gritty. It's about her metalwork, her furniture. It actually, we have three screens uh, showing her process drawings. So to really emphasize the notion of her careful thinking and consideration 
and really leaning back to what Charles and Ray often did in terms of iteration. We get to the third room and that is a celebration of 220 photographs, primarily which she took, which really document her calligraphy, thank you notes, again some sketches, her family, her photography, which is very ambiguous. She learned really how to see with Charles and Ray in the summers. And then we end with video that my brother put together that really is shows Lucia in motion, which is terrific because it suddenly brings her to life. And you get to see a 92-foot tower that she designed with her um, ex-husband and a gate we had fabricated here in Italy to because we couldn't dig it up and, and transport it from California easily, and some wonderful panels that sort of describe Lucia in many ways. How do you feel when you enter the space? Oh, my goodness. Um, I feel even more magnified than the joy of the last 16 months of archiving her work and never knowing what I was going to find. And her, her work, right now, just thinking about it, I have little goosebumps because it's a happy, happy place. And seeing the visitors yesterday and the sparkle in their eye once they left really made it clear that it wasn't just me as a child who was enthralled with my mother's work, but it's really many. Do you have any plans to somehow spread that happiness? Do you have any idea for those butterflies and so forth for, for the future? <laughs> well, our dream, of course, is to have other exhibitions and other gallery spaces. There are so many possibilities that we could go with because right now we're only, we're showing less than 50 of the butterflies. And my job has been fascinating because I just got another shipment right a month before coming here. And we now have 191 of her butterflies. This seems odd. The placement on magazine pages of the precision of the line work and it's the type of thing that if you simply put it on a note card it would also spread the happiness. Maybe an easier question to finish <laughs> this interview with and how, how, how does your work with the Eames Foundation continue now? What kind of plans do you have for the future? Well we are progressing with the comprehensive management program that is how do we ensure that house uh, remains for the 250 years. For me, I work now hand-in-hand -hand with the Lucia Eames Archive. For us, this is really about spreading the word and it's in tandem a bit with the Eames office um, thinking because mom obviously embodied that. It's, for me at least, it's a big, broader enlargement of the ideas and my all four other siblings are highly supportive of this in multiple ways. I just hope we can sort of wrap the world with this wonderful sort of vision that this woman who kept very private is enabling us to share with her now after her death. And I just want to end on one thing. What is so interesting is that I believe that mom I want her to be there and to experience the joy that is seen in the eyes of everyone who's visiting. But my brother received a little gift of a butterfly flying in to the gallery, the first room, and it landed and fluttered around this one butterfly, and he got it on video, and then it exited. And I'm thinking to myself when I saw it, 
the video, I thought, why Eames, Mom? Why not me? And wouldn't you know, just a few hours later, kid you not, this little tiny yellow butterfly came to the window, it came through, it fluttered, it hung, and then out it went. And what was so intriguing was the mom once had redecorated my house, or not my house, my room, when I was about 15, and she chose the colors gold and yellow. It just was a powerful reminder that perhaps she too is here enjoying this. During Salone del Mobile, gallery spaces, showrooms and palazzo courtyards in Milan are often occupied by grand installations from designers and brands showcasing their work. But Andrea Farapani, who heads up L'Ombrello, a Milan-based studio known for its highly customisable collection of steel-framed chairs, prefers the street as his display space. Since he launched the brand at the trade show in 2018, Forapani has always shown his wares on Via Solferino, one of the busiest thoroughfares in the Brera neighbourhood. I caught up with him to find out about the brand and why he likes the hustle and bustle of a curbside display. My background is in architecture. A few years ago, I, I started L'Ombrello, which is my, my own brand. My idea is to propose something simple, and customizable and I started from the product that everybody says you shouldn't start from so the chair my focus is on the chair I basically picked a model that had really an emotional connection to me it's a it, it reminds me of the chair my grandma had in in her own kitchen and I started from there and uh, made it fully customizable so we started from the laminate and um, and then grew into textiles, all sorts of materials. I use uh, my product as a, as a base and I try everything that comes into my profession. I continue to work a bit as an architect, but uh, I draw inspiration from architecture and, and put it on the product. Amazing. I mean, and, and we'll, we'll dive into the products in a minute, but our, our listeners are going to be able to hear like a lot of road sound and noise behind us. Yeah. We're here uh, in Brera for Milan Design Week in Salona del Mobile. Tell me why we're standing on the street and how, how this started, because you're showing your products here on the street. How did this start? Yeah, so um, four years ago, I had really just designed and made the first prototypes of the product. And um, I wanted to find something uh, or some a place to showcase it so that people would really have the opportunity to access it and, and try it and give me a feedback. So the idea was to take probably the most... Uh, congested area of Brera Design District to have the maximum feedback from the people. So I took a parking space on the street and put a wooden platform on it. Like four years ago, I really put the first 20 products on it and people started to sit down and love it and try it and give me feedbacks. And that was really what kind of created a momentum Initially, more in myself, in my work, it convinced me that there was a value to this product. Who are you seeing come and, and talk to you about these chairs? Is it the general public? Are there designers? Is it a mix of everyone? It is really a wide mixture of, of everyone, in the sense that in this street you have people that are really into design, uh, that are going to see uh, the showrooms of the bigger brands and so on, um, but also the general public, tourists and so on, 
all sorts of extractions. They could be very focused on design or really not at all. Like how um, people, I mean, lo looking around to have some reference. I mean, I, I want to pick up on something you mentioned before. You said, you know, when you did this four years ago, it sort of gave you the, the confidence in, in the product. Mm -hmm. How important is like showing in, in Milan at this time and in this sort of space? This space and this event is the reason why, I mean, after four years I'm here and I have a product and we go to market, the product works uh, quite a bit, we have good feedback. So for me, the street is really the first feedback for me. It's, it's a huge inspiration because you, you can get feedbacks from everybody and it's, it, it opens up a lot, like it opens up your mind and I think uh, the result on the product uh, draws a lot from, from the street. Do you think you could get away with setting up a deck outside of Milan Design Week though? <laughs> would that, how would that go down? <laughs> I mean, uh, look, um, I think this is a really special occasion and uh, I would never, never give up on this, uh, on this space. Now I feel like uh, for a week uh, during the year, this is my home, so. Amazing, I mean, can we, can we talk through this year's set design? So you've still got the timber decks. Tell me a little bit about how you're displaying your, your product yeah, so the idea, the idea is always to put the product uh, with a background that shows uh, uh, a color, uh, an idea of what their homes could be, or an idea of what uh, um, like we uh, would love their homes to be. So you always have a background. You're standing between the street and the pedestrian way, and people can come, stop, like be attracted from the colors uh, and the colorful setting. And then they just, we, we see an interest, we see an interaction and we go and we propose them to try. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very simple, very basic uh, approach to the public. But um, I mean, we've seen that it works. The set is really a gradient around us with um, all the colors of the laminates that we use for our uh, product. So people have an immediate understanding of the product being about customization, you can do it in all sorts of colors, you can customize it and tune it uh, in relation to your identity. These are the simplest and basic concept of what we want to, to do with the product. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business, and much more. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. It's putting a lot of pressure on people in Japan at a time when they're struggling with the pandemic as it is. So I think it's a difficult one for the government to handle, but I think the communication's been pretty poor. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8 a.m. Zurich time, 7 a.m. in London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24, or wherever you get your podcasts. We stay in Milan city centre now to visit an experimental art installation which took the city by storm last week. Artist Daniel Arsham teamed up with US brand Cola to create Divided Layers, a sculptural tunnel which visitors could walk through that was inspired by the 3D printed forms of Cola's limited edition Rock 01 sink designed by the aforementioned Arsham. Monocle's Marcus Hippie went along to find out more about the installation and the collaboration between the artist and brand. 
My name is Daniel Arsham. I am a visual artist and designer from New York. David Kohler, CEO of Kohler Company. How did you end up collaborating together? How does, how does the story begin? Well, our team is always scouring the world for the best artists and designers in the world that could possibly work with us. And they became entranced with Daniel, not only because of his amazing art and design and his capability, but because he goes deep into the craft and he loves to work with materials and different technologies to create these works of art. And so we knew he was the right person to embrace 3D printing, which is a very forward technology, but we also work with materials from the past. So he was the perfect person to bring and blend the future and the past. And Daniel, when um, David got in touch, what were your first thoughts? Was the reaction that you want to do this, definitely? So the first thing, you know, I went out and visited in Kohler, Wisconsin, and one of the first things I noticed was that the materials that they produce with are very similar to what I make sculpture with, right? Ceramics, metal, um, and even some of the processes for casting were very familiar to me. And so I saw this opportunity to kind of leverage some of the ideas that might be present in my sculptural work into something that would be produced on a larger scale. We are in a traditional Italian palazzo. A series of stone columns surround us on a very regular rhythm. And in the center appears to be a large white cube sitting in a pool of, of black water. And the cube has these erosion shapes in it, this uh, breaking that allows us to enter. And the, the scale of the erosions shrinks as we move through it, guiding us through what looks like a kind of portal, right, to another universe, another world where it leads. I don't know, this is kind of up to the viewer, but that sort of describes it. I think we should walk okay. towards it. And whilst we're doing this, can you tell me about the physical process of being in Milan and, and creating this? How long has it has it taken? How did you do it? Well, the team has been here for a couple of weeks constructing it. It was all built uh, here in Milan. The piece is very specific to the scale of the space, the context of this very kind of modern, minimal object sitting inside of a historical Palazzo and that contrast is also something that was heavily considered. But we just started designing this probably about a year ago. And I think fortunately Daniel and his team are, are very used to doing very large pieces of art and works around the world in outdoor spaces. So they were well situated to make sure that we pulled this off. How do you hope people will feel? What kind of emotions do you want to create? What do you think people should hopefully feel when they come here and see this installation? Yeah, I mean, with much of my work, it's about a kind of invitation to enter a new space, a new you know way of thinking. And I described this before as a kind of portal, right, to enter this new space. No specific meaning, I think, is present in any of my work. It's rather like an invitation to view something in a different way. What do you think? Well, we like to create memories of a lifetime, and I would like to think that people coming to this beautiful palazzo and, and seeing this incredible piece of art just opens their mind and imagination to what's possible, and they always remember this place and time and the thoughts that came to their mind. Do you also have the angle or, or the thought that you somehow want to modify or change the way people think about the brand cola? Well, I think that's up to the, the viewer, but our, uh, our company's always stood for living on the leading edge of design and technology. We've always been a great supporter of the arts, and we believe that you know, arts informs design and is at the center of critical importance to society and progressive thinking. 
We've worked with artists in our factory, over 500 of them since the early 70s. So this is just an extension of what we really believe in, perpetuating and expanding the arts, supporting the arts, as well as uh, showing uh, what forward design's thinking looks like. Have you got your hands on our sister magazine, Confect, yet? Well, you might also be interested in Confect Corner, our podcast accompaniment hosted by me, Sophie Grove, with Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak between London and Zurich. Join us each month for stories on travel, fashion and craft, and drinking and dining across Europe and beyond. Episode one is available now, where we discuss the art of scent, Celebrate the sanctuary of the bathroom and meet the designers Paula Gabez and Kazu Hugler. I'm not interested in producing many pieces of one design. I'm always interested in the person who is going to wear it. Subscribe at confectmagazine.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Finally on today's show, we head to the epicentre of Salone del Mobile, the trade halls at the Rofiera Milano Fairgrounds. Here, 2,000 exhibitors showcased their wares to the world's design enthusiasts, and in that number were Italian lighting brand Artemide. The company has collaborated with numerous architects, from Bjarke Engels to Herzog and Muron, and has been showing at the fair since its early days. To explain why, I caught up with the company's president and CEO, Carlotta Di Bevilacqua, at the fairgrounds. Milano was really, uh, through the Polytechnical Union University, really was uh, the starting point of design all over the world since the beginnings. In Milano, the first architects, Magistretti, Ben Gioioso, and many, many others. Gioponti and so on, they started, and also the company, not only Artemi, the Floss and many others, really start the history of design in Milano. So the Salone del Mobile is super important, and Artemi has supported this edition and this uh, revolutionary edition that put together in the same space many companies uh, with uh, different product typologies. But, coming back to Artemide, we are really proud to show the future. The future is linked to the main architects, like starting from ABC, Aravena, Big, Biarkengos Group, Cucinella, Mario Cucinella, Foster and Partners, Herzog and Meron, and so on. The best architects in the world, Neriu and so on. But, in the same time, because architects design the light for human spaces. And at the same time, we measure all this through the parameters of sustainability. I would like to remind that Artemide is a company that has a circular process in terms of conceiving the research, conceiving the ideas, develop the ideas, all this process, and go to the production and delivering. So we are one of the, I think that, of course I say, the best company in manage all this circularity. Starting from idea, the research, as I said, designing, 
producing and delivering. We have factories, we have research, we have uh, commercial sales, and we have the beauty of products. I oh, know, I think you do, and I've, we've been lucky enough to walk around this space earlier, but I want to ask you, you talked about the future of lighting there, and you talked about the relationship with architects and the relationship with sustainability. How do those two work together? How do the architects and, and their designing for people and designing light for people work with your sustainable circular processes? Yes, of course. You are too clever to synthesize. Thank you. Now, I have to add two things. I answer to your question, then I add something. I am an architect, so I've studied, really, the meaning since the beginning between light and spaces. So this is, uh, and uh, the, as I said, the heritage of Ernesto Dismondi, as I said before, is the same. So light and uh, architecture is something that you don't have any space without light. And uh, this is the first point. The second is that the research, the innovation part, I think that we need always to be generous, to be an open platform. So the cooperation, the collaboration with architects is first of all sharing the same values toward the future, ethics, uh, human values. The second is to be generous, to deliver our knowledge and to learn from them. And so this is the platform to become uh, friends, to stay together and also to be always in a dynamic relation. So we don't design shapes. We design uh, through the energy of light, through our manufacturing, tropological and social study in terms of our needs and so on. We design a material that is energy, the energy of light, a material that delivers to the humanity the quality a great part of life quality, but on, not only to the humanity, but also to the nature. So we improve the nature, we improve our psychological and physiological uh, well-being, and also our emotional, because I, I'm looking at you and you're looking at me through the light. I mean, I, w I want to ask about that, that, that connection to our human experience of space. And I want to pick up on something you said before. You said we can't have space without light. How do we light our environments so that we can build better relationships, so that the, the natural environment can be healthier? Can you tell me a little bit about that? I have only one answer, the right wavelength. Because it's like a music. As in the music, you play the music through the notes and the, uh, the right wavelength. Because really, wavelength is a matter of perceiving the light, uh, any any human or animal has this kind of perception, but is very important because light feeds, as I said, our brain, everything, but also feeds our emotions. And the right wavelength means that if you go towards the blue, is uh, cold, and you receive energy. If you go, if you go towards the red. You relax and you have more emotions. It seems maybe stupid, but it's very scientific and deep. So, I, every time uh, coming back to architecture or coming back to other hard um, works, you perceive a synthesis of 
something, but inside that synthesis there are much of knowledge. And I think that uh, our culture in Europe, in Italy, is a mix, uh, like in a Renaissance, is uh, really a synthesis between humanism and science. So light, we measure the light in terms of energy, in terms of wavelengths, in terms of many parameters, but on, on one hand. The other hand is that we measure the light in terms of manufacturing, in terms of perceiving emotions. And at the end, uh, this is uh, our job, to put together all this deep uh, knowledge in a simple, in a simple uh, solutions that give emotion and support our life. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. My thanks to Charlie Fillmore Court and Maylie Evans for editing today's show. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening.